engine running. Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery, advances, questions, research, technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is the Naked Scientist. Hello, welcome to the programme where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine with me, Chris Smith, and with Sally LePage. This week, as Omicron cases continue to rise, what can we learn about it from South Africa? Researchers figure out why quitting smoking often leads to weight gain and why we're all bad judges of when we're over the drink-drive limit. Plus, we've seen them in the movies, but how close are we to having nano-robots in reality? And what are we going to do with them when we get them? We'll be unpacking the tiny details of nanotech. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. It's now almost three weeks since we learned of the emergence in southern Africa of the highly transmissible COVID variant that the WHO have diplomatically christened Omicron. A handful of initial cases detected in the UK have quickly become thousands. And now, with wide-scale spread in the community, over 15% of the positive COVID diagnoses each day are this new variant. Fearing the health services are at risk of being overwhelmed again, the UK government announced new restrictions to try to slow down the spread. We're seeing growth in cases here in the UK that now mirrors the rapid increases previously seen in South Africa. And South Africa is also seeing hospitalizations roughly doubling in a week, meaning that we can't yet assume that Omicron is less severe than previous variants. So while the picture may get better, and I sincerely hope that it will, we know that the remorseless logic of exponential growth could lead to a big rise in hospitalizations and therefore, sadly, in deaths. According to the UK Health Security Agency, a person is twice as likely to pass on Omicron to someone else than they are for Delta. Although preliminary results released by the agency indicate that a person who has had a full vaccine course and a booster jab is still 75% protected. For the moment, though, for people who do succumb, we don't know how serious the infection is going to be. But one way we can get some insights and try to find out is to look at the situation in South Africa, where they're several weeks ahead of us and now have had the chance to study the impact of the new variant on their populace. Helen Rees runs a medical research laboratory at the University of Witzwatersrand in Johannesburg. She also chairs South Africa's Medicines Regulatory Board, the equivalent of our MHRA, and is an advisor to the WHO for the Southern African region. She told Chris what they're seeing so far. If we look at a month ago, South Africa's numbers of new COVID cases were really quite low, sort of 100, 200 a day, very few deaths. And I think the, the population was feeling quite comfortable. But with Omicron, the numbers have really gone up extremely rapidly. It appears at a population level that this is a very transmissible variant. That, that means it spreads pretty easily. And we first saw it in groups of young people but mostly mild and moderate disease. When you say a big increase in numbers, you've gone from a few hundred cases per day. What sorts of numbers are we seeing now? So we've gone up to now about sort of 11,000 in a day, and it's going up. Of particular concern was that this started in the sort of heartland of South Africa, Kauteng, which is the province with the highest population numbers. 
So many of the cases that we're seeing are in this province, but we're now seeing the numbers going up in other provinces as well. One crucial question must be, who is catching this? Now, you've said it first surfaced in younger people, but are these younger people who are vaccinated? Is it younger people who've previously been infected with coronavirus and recovered and now they're getting this variant again? Is it unvaccinated individuals? Mixture? First of all, in terms of who is getting admitted to hospital, it does seem that we've had a shift from older people to a younger age group, teenagers, but also children under five. Now, that could be because our vaccination coverage is much higher in older people. So it could be that what we're seeing is the protection of older people. But it's not completely that. The young people being admitted, the duration of stay in hospital is much shorter. And in terms of disease severity, it seems to be less severe than we saw, for example, with the Delta variant. So that's one piece of good news. But of course, with large numbers of people infected in the community, we are seeing the numbers of admissions going up. Now, your other question is, are these unvaccinated, unvaccinated, or people who've had infections? And there's two things there. One is that we are seeing people who've previously had an infection, a proven infection, that they are becoming reinfected. We're also seeing people who've been fully vaccinated also becoming infected. However, in both cases, we're not seeing such severe disease. So although we're seeing vaccine breakthrough infections, we seem to be not seeing such severe disease. Do you have a feel for what proportion of people are ending up having to come to hospital? Because that's, of course, the really big question when governments around the world are trying to safeguard their health service provision. They've got an eye on potential case burden and how many of those cases are likely to translate very quickly into cases that need hospitalisation. So what fraction under these circumstances are ending up needing hospital care compared with Delta that we already have some familiarity with? It's difficult for us to say what fraction because many people, especially with mild or moderate disease, um, and many people will be asymptomatic, they're simply not testing. So the people who are tending to test at the moment are people with more severe symptoms. Uh, so, so it's difficult to say how many people have got it. But what we're not seeing is the same steep rise of hospital admissions as we saw with Delta. Although the numbers of cases that we are detecting is going up very rapidly with Omicron, we're not seeing the same sort of rise that we saw with Delta, which does suggest that the severity of the disease might be less so than, than we saw with Delta. But we're obviously looking at this very closely. But at the moment, that's the impression that many clinicians have got. What we do know is the majority of people who are being hospitalized are the unvaccinated. So clearly, vaccination is giving some degree of protection to those who are vaccinated. Is South Africa currently growing the variant in the laboratory and doing the sorts of experiments that we really are aching for the answers to, where we take antibodies that people have made in response to the the vaccines that we've administered so far and asking the question how many antibodies do I need in order to block the the growth of this virus so we can work out whether the population is vaccinated or not really at the moment? Yes those studies are already well underway and in fact we've already seen the results of one of the studies. So in that study they looked at the new variant and they looked at how effective people who'd had the Pfizer vaccine and how effective that vaccine was in terms of what we call neutralizing that virus. 
there was a reduction, a really significant reduction in the effectiveness, but it wasn't a wipeout. It didn't get rid of the protective effects of the of the vaccine antibodies completely, which is encouraging because uh, that means that we would anticipate that uh, these highly effective vaccines would continue to have an, uh, protection, even if that protection is somewhat reduced. So actually, the picture from South Africa, that of a milder illness that does still respond fairly well to vaccination, looks pretty encouraging at this point. And critically, Pfizer have also echoed those observations on the performance of their vaccines against the new variant. That was Helen Rees. We'll keep you posted on how this unfolds, of course. Now, many people lose weight when they start smoking cigarettes. Indeed, back in the 1990s, many fashion icons seemed to exist on a diet of coffee and tobacco. Unfortunately, the reverse effect is also true. When people quit smoking, they very quickly put on weight, up to 10 kilos a year, in fact. And this weight gain is one of the big reasons why some smokers are reluctant to give up. Now a team of microbiologists at Israel's Weissman Institute of Science have been using mice to try to figure out exactly what's happening inside the body that causes this weight gain. And in doing so, they may have just invented a new weight loss drug, as I heard from Elan Elenav. We can control the amount of smoke that these mice actively are exposed to, but once we stop their exposure to smoking, these mice put on a lot of weight within a very short period of time. And is this just because they are hungrier and so they're eating more food? No, this was one of the first surprises that we encountered in this study. We found that they were gaining lots of weight, but but were not eating more or changing their exercise behaviours, which was a very big mystery. Wait, but we all know that the way that people gain weight is because they either eat more or exercise less. So what's going on? This was what we knew until 10 or 15 years ago, but we've since learned that there is a third mechanism, and this is called energy harvest, which is the capacity of our body to extract different amounts of energy from a given type of food. And now we know that this energy harvest capacity, at least partially, is controlled by the activity of the microbes that reside within our gastrointestinal tract. Okay, so you can eat exactly the same food, but one person absorbs more of the energy and the other person poops out more of the energy. Exactly. And you mentioned the microbiome. Do mice also have a gut microbiome like humans do? They do indeed, and that is up to 90% similar to the one we observed in humans. And how can bacteria and microbes in our gut change how much energy we get from our food? There are many different ways by which our microbes can impact human health, but they can also secrete thousands of small molecules, which we call metabolites, into our bloodstream. And so coming back to this smoking and and weight gain, these bacteria, are they producing chemicals that make us, the human, extract more energy from the food? Or is it the gut bacteria themselves that are extracting more energy from the food? That's an excellent question. And and the surprising result was that we found that these gut bacteria are actually changed and modified both in their composition and their behavior following the exposure of mice to cigarette smokes. And what we've discovered was that two of these molecules, two of these chemicals that are secreted in an altered fashion by these gut microbes can explain the dramatic tendency of mice to develop weight gain when they stop being exposed to smoke. Why do these microbes 
want their host to absorb more energy from the food when they experience the chemicals from smoke? When animals or humans are exposed to cigarette smoke and because of the chemicals introduced through cigarette smoke, they tend to lose a lot of weight, the microbes as our internal partners try to reverse this tendency by increasing the secretion of molecules that are aimed at increasing the weight back. Oh, bless. So our little gut microbes are trying to protect us from starvation when we're just trying to drop a dress size. I suppose the big question that a lot of smokers will be wondering is how long does this microbiome effect last after someone stops smoking? Because, of course, weight gain isn't good for your health, but then neither is smoking. So if someone is to quit smoking, is that it? Have they doomed themselves to putting on more weight forever? You know, we can only answer uh, this question at this point in mice. Once you stop smoking, these bacteria are there to stay for for many months. Whether this is the case in humans, uh, we don't know. But the encouraging news is that once we've discovered how the microbes induce weight gain and identified the two molecules that contribute to this tendency, now we can intervene during the smoking cessation period and either supplement mice or humans with a molecule that induces weight reduction or block the activity of the molecule that induced weight gain. And by this, we can help people stop smoking without paying the price in terms of their weight gain. So potentially you could get a pill that you swallow and it kind of knocks out the chemical that's causing this weight gain so that people won't have weight gain. I mean, that sounds amazing. Would that work with weight gain not associated with quitting smoking? We asked ourselves this exact question, whether now that we've identified the bioactive molecules, we could give them to mice that are suffering of obesity, even in the non-smoking context. So these these mice are obese, but because of other reasons, and, and they were never exposed to smoke. And when we gave the weight-reducing molecule to obese mice, they developed a quite dramatic weight reduction and improvement in metabolic parameters. That is a massive discovery. I suppose it's like telling your gut microbes, don't worry, I'm not starving. I am just trying to lose a dress size. Don't worry about me. You don't need to make keep me fat. We're not going to die. Exactly. And to quench our curiosity, we've even gone into humans and we try to measure in smokers or in people that never smoke the same chemicals and the same microbes that we've discovered in mice. And and to a large extent, the changes that we've observed in smoking humans uh, were very similar to the ones that we've observed in mice, which encourages us that maybe, and and this uh, will be followed up in clinical trials, some of the concepts that we discovered here in mice could be also applicable in humans. Well, wouldn't that be absolutely wonderful, especially with all of the overeating that will inevitably be going on in the next month or so. That was Elan Elinaf, and he was speaking with Sally on work he's just published in the journal Nature. From baffling British weather... Sideways spines of the vertebrae coming off here. ...to looking at a cheetah from the inside out. Games making their way to the clinic and what to eat in your garden. Mm. The Naked Scientists In Short podcasts bring you a top-up of short, compelling science stories. Listen and download for free at nakedscientist.com short or subscribe to Naked Specials wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come in this hour, we selflessly drink rosé in the name of science to see how much is too much when it comes to judging your drinking and driving risk and why nanosurgeons might be just around the corner. But first, 
An apple a day allegedly keeps the doctor away. But when Apple is a smartwatch, things can get even more interesting. Because researchers at Stanford University are using the data from the devices we wear to identify stress events in real time. The smartphone app monitors your resting heart rate and can even alert to coronavirus infections before any symptoms appear. Mike Snyder told Trisha Smith how it works. We're following your normal healthy baseline, and then if there's a jump up in signal, an alert goes off. And it works about 80% of the time, we'll get an alert at or before a symptom. And it turns out it's an average of three days from our real-time alerting system. So three days prior to people getting ill, on average, a red alert will go off. Now, we do miss it in 20% of the cases, and we think that's because it's hard to get a stable, healthy baseline on some people, and so that makes finding these triggers a lot harder. And that's why we're trying to improve our algorithms as well. And all of that is, at the moment, done from resting heart rate, but you want to look at heart rate variability, uh, activity level, sleep quality, and what are you hoping to find from that additional data? Yeah, we think that will be key to telling the difference between, say, a respiratory viral infection and a mental health stress and other sorts of triggers. Things like alcohol, intense exercise can all trigger these alerts. Most of them you can contextualize and simply ignore. Certainly intense exercise, we we should be able to ultimately subtract out because we'll see that from the smartwatch. Yeah, because with intense exercise, you're probably going to have some kind of evidence of elevated heart rate from the intense exercise itself. Exactly. What about asymptomatic cases? Were you able to detect those and how far in advance did you detect them? Yeah, remarkably, we can find asymptomatic cases as well. So 14 out of 18 asymptomatic cases we could pick up. And in some cases, the signal have appeared two weeks prior to when they were diagnosed. Because I'm a religious tracker of my own health, I already have access to my heart rate data. And I tested positive asymptomatically. And my heart rate spiked and then it went down again at roughly the same time. But it's interesting that you say the alert comes about two weeks prior to that in some asymptomatic cases because I had another infection about two weeks prior to that. Yeah, in our very first study, what we noticed is that about half the time people had another stress event prior to their covid we don't know what that was due to. It could have been another illness. It could have been, uh, you know, possibly a mental stress. It's not clear, but we've noticed it was quite frequent. I think more than you would expect at random. So what that means is that we think there may be early stressors that perhaps make people more susceptible to viral infections as well. You're preaching to the choir a little bit because I love my data and I wear a smartwatch, but If you were to try and convince someone who didn't really track their health and didn't wear an Apple Watch or anything like that, what would you say to them to convince them to start monitoring their health in real time? I'd say, do you drive your car around without a dashboard? Why do you drive your body around without a health dashboard? It makes no sense. I think that's what we need for human health. We currently rely on internal sensors, which kind of work, but they're slow. We think that these physiological sensors from smart devices can actually find things much, much earlier and warn people ahead of time before symptoms. And that's super powerful. Every year, these smartwatches seem to add another sensor. What do you think is the future for wearable technology? And how much do you think we're going to be able to gain from those wearable devices? I think we're only at the beginning. For example, there's something called galvanic stress response that measures the conductance on your skin. That actually can tell you when you're getting stressed because the more you sweat, the more it'll pick up a signal. 
And likewise, if you have diabetes, your skin gets drier and that can get picked up as well. So it's making certain kinds of measurements that we don't currently do. And so we can actually incorporate that into health monitoring in a way that's never been done. So you're saying that, you know, nowadays my watch tells me to move if I haven't moved in an hour, but in the future, it's going to tell me to drink and eat as well. I think so. And it'll tell you, yeah, when you're getting stressed. So maybe you better sit down and meditate. (laughs) And it will guide me through the meditation as well. Probably, yeah. Play music automatically. Maybe that's where we're going. I'm not sure I need my watch to remind me that I've overdone it the day before. Trisha Smith there speaking with Mike Snyder and the research was published in Nature Medicine. Now on the subject of watches, here's a story to watch. There's been a huge find in the field of quantum physics, real-life laboratory-based observations of a long theorised form of matter called quantum spin liquids has become a reality. Now, contrary to the name, it has absolutely nothing to do with everyday liquids like water. Now, you're going to need to strap on your mental seatbelt and settle in for the ride. Harry Lewis speaks to Julia Semaghini from Harvard University to hear what this matter is and why it might be useful. Quantum spin liquids have been theorised about 50 years ago by Philip Anderson, who is a pretty big guy in the condensed matter community. He was trying to find a solution for why certain types of superconductors exist, which are called high-temperature superconductors. High-temperature superconductors have long baffled physicists as they work at higher temperatures than normal superconductors. Still very cold, mind you. We're talking about minus 196 Celsius. So normally when you have a solid, you have that your atoms are ordered in some crystalline structure. And the electrons uh, are also somehow ordered. And when you say crystalline, that means basically like a very uniform structure, doesn't it? Something we can predict. They are in a certain, it can be a square lattice, a triangular lattice. You can think of something like that. In most observed matter, electrons exist as either spin up or spin down. And they like to pair up in opposites. Whenever you have a moving electron, that generates a magnetic field. Think of the up and down a little bit like the north and south pole of a magnet. When electrons do pair up, they actually cancel out one another's magnetic fields. Yeah, it's a magnetic uh, equilibrium, let's, let's put it like this. If you instead have a triangular lattice, for example, what happens is that the third one doesn't know which way to orient itself because <laughs> in either possibility, it's going to be aligned with one of its It's a snakes. third wheel. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So this is what it's called frustration, the, the third electron is frustrated and so his idea was that the electrons would choose to do something different it chooses to do everything nothing one thing and that other thing all at the same time get your head around that it's a concept known as quantum superposition this is a quantum concept this idea of superposition where instead of choosing an orientation they would create this state that he called a quantum spin liquid In regular magnets, when the temperature drops low enough, electrons stabilise and form solid matter with magnetic properties because the electrons are stuck in either a spin-up state or a spin-down state. In quantum spin liquid, the constant ambiguity of the electron state prevents freezing. It therefore has a range of unusual and novel properties, such as, here's another one for you, long-ranged quantum electron entanglement which simply means that basically the electrons that are on opposite side of the same uh, piece of material, they're somehow tight in their state with each other. And that, my non-physicist friends, 
is freaky. It's action at a distance. Altering the state of one electron on this side of the material would affect its partner all the way across on the other side of the material. Almost like when one twin in the UK gets hurt and the other twin, residing in Australia, gets the shivers. After 50 years of searching, Julia and her team observed for the first time quantum spin liquid sat there right in front of them on the lab bench. So what you would see is this vacuum chamber with a vacuum setup and a bunch of mirrors and lenses and lasers that occupy the a quite big table. What you would see if you looked into the vacuum chamber with this microscope objective that we use is just you would see this array of atoms. You, we can really, you really take photographs of the atoms and how they look like and they're very, they're actually very nice. And how did you identify this um, quantum spin liquid? What was it that, that proved that it was there for you? So w what you need to do is you need to prove that there is this entanglement that I was mentioning before and if they have specific properties, if you see these correlations it means that you have a spin liquid. And so we measured these and we found that they were there. But why is there so much hype over this hard to wrap your head around quantum matter? Well, Julia says it's another step towards building the elusive quantum computer. If only I actually knew what that meant. We hear a lot about quantum computers. How do we define what quantum means? What quantum means? Yeah. Well, the basic idea of a quantum computer is so when you have a computer, you have bits, and the bits are the systems in which you encode the information. So it's a whatever system that can have a zero or a one state. If you have a quantum computer, these bits are quantum. They're called quantum bits, so qubits. And the, the main thing is that being quantum means that they can exist in a, super, in a superposition state, which is what I was mentioning before, meaning... A bit can only be zero or one. A quantum bit can be in a superposition of these two states and anything in between, which means it's not in zero or one, it's in a superposition of these states. And this is the first thing. The second thing is that there is this entanglement property. So if you have more qubits, they can be in these entangled states where their states are really connected to each other. You cannot treat them individually. You really need to consider their uh, combined state. And this could be really useful for future uses. The idea is that thanks to these two properties, uh, the quantum computers could do things that classical computers cannot do because thanks to these two properties, you can basically multiply exponentially the calculation capability of this, of this quantum computer. So some tricky theories to get to grips with, but beautifully explained by Julia Semaghini, discussing her new findings that have just come out in the journal Science. Now, if you were nipping out to the pub for a drinking session, or perhaps just one drink in this case, would you still drive home? While we have guidelines for how much alcohol consumption is deemed safe before getting behind the wheel, ultimately it is up to us to judge whether we're over that and our own limit. According to research published this week, though, we're not very good at all at estimating how drunk we really are. Julia Ravy spoke to Kai Hensel about these mismeasurements, and without too much persuasion on our part, she volunteered to do her own bit of self-assessment. We had 
90 participants that first had a standardized meal to ensure that everyone had the same caloric intake based on sex, age, body mass index, and so on. And then everyone had the same amount of alcohol over time. And we asked participants to come forward when they thought they were now on the edge of not being allowed to drive a car anymore. And 40 to 50% based on the study day were actually already exceeding that limit. They then kept drinking for about um, double of the amount of the alcohol concentration that you would be allowed to have in your blood to still drive a car. And the more the intake was, the poorer the judgment, so the less accurate the self-estimation was. Wow. So essentially, the more drunk people got, the less good they were at estimating if they'd reached that limit. Exactly. I am treating myself to a nice little glass of wine. It's really cold outside and you know what? I deserve a treat. But I'm going to see if I could judge when I have reached the legal limit for driving, which in the UK is 0.08%. So I've bought myself a little breathalyzer and what I'm going to do is eat my dinner. Now, I think for me, I'm five foot five. I could have a medium to large glass of rosé and I think I'd be fine to drive. Well, I'll take the breathalyzer and see if that is the case. How good am I at estimating my alcohol limits? Cheers to a good week. So I've just finished my dinner and my glass of wine. And now before I take my breathalyzer, I have to be nil by mouth for 15 minutes. Just to clarify, I'm in my house and I'm not leaving for the night, but I feel fine and I think I will be okay to drive a car. So while I wait to take my breathalyzer, I thought I'd ask if there is any way that we can improve how perceptive we are about how much alcohol we've had. In this study, we asked everyone to come back a week after they participated first in the study, and then we did the same again. And we again looked how well they could estimate whether or not they were drunk and they were still allowed to drive a car. And interestingly, they became more accurate on the second time. So while we didn't tell them the first time how drunk they were, just by participating in the study, they were already improving their self-estimation. So the answer is yes. And after performing this study, what is the take-home message for people thinking about driving home after having a drink? The take-home message is not really surprising that obviously it's unsafe to drive while you're under the influence of alcohol. And the importance is that more people than you would think are actually misjudging how drunk they are already. And there's actually quite good estimations. You will find apps or websites where you can just put in, I'm 26, my body weight is 60 kilograms and I'm female. I had two beers over three hours. What's my estimated blood alcohol level? And you could use those as a guess, basically. And they are not too bad. On average, this, this works quite well. It's been 15 minutes now and I'm ready to take my breathalyzer. I don't know how much I should trust this because I bought it off the internet and it says it is intended to control overdrink of alcohol. Well, it's true in a way, isn't it? We don't want to overdrink alcohol. So, 0.34? No, that can't be right. 
That means I'm almost five times over. I'm going to do that again. Okay, blow again. Percentage is 0.06. I think that's more like it. Okay, as a good scientist, let's do one more test. 0.06. So I am technically under the legal limit right now to drive in the UK, but in other countries like Germany, the limit is 0.05. So with that one glass of wine, I'd actually be over the limit. <laughs> that first reader really scared me. I can't believe it said 0.34%. I would have drank about three bottles of wine, I think, to be at that level. That's the importance of, you know, repeating things at least three times. As I'm actually not driving anywhere right now and I'm in my flat for the evening, maybe I should repeat the drink test as well. Cheers. Well, someone's got to do it and drink rosé in the name of science, haven't they? That was Julia Ravey with a take-home message of avoiding drinking and driving, even if you do feel you're all right. Much has changed for business owners, managers and staff recently. But with over 30 years' experience in telecommunications, award-winning independent company Spitfire have the expertise to make sure you stay ahead and can keep on innovating. Whether it's connectivity, MPLS networks, firewalls, or phone systems, Spitfire can help. To find out more, go to spitfire.co.uk. That's spitfire.co.uk. Spitfire, telecoms and IP engineering solutions for business since 1988. Music in the Programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions. But right now, you're with your favourite science show, and that's The Naked Scientists with me, Sally LePage. And for the rest of the show this week, we're talking all about nanotechnology. And joining me in the studio is University of Cambridge nanotechnologist Katie King, who has been working with us at The Naked Scientists. Katie, first things first, what is nanotechnology other than just another buzzword? Oh, but it is my favourite buzzword. But what nano means is really small. Okay, but how small is small? Much smaller than iPod nanos, if you remember those. But what we're talking about is a millionth of a millimetre, so stuff on the atomic scale. And nanotechnology is about controlling and building materials on this length scale for a whole load of different purposes. But if it's so small, what can it actually do? Why should we bother with it? That is a good question. And as an example, let's take diamond and graphite. Both of them are made up of only carbon, yet they have very different properties. I can't imagine you'd be best pleased with a ring with a chunk of graphite on it. I don't know. I mean, I'd never be lost for a pencil. (laughs) That's true. But their differences are down to their nanostructure. So by controlling stuff on the nanoscale, we can end up with some very different and very cool properties. And even materials that can change shape on command. Okay, but... When am I going to need a nanomaterial? This all sounds very science fiction and nothing that I'll actually come across in the real world. Well, Sally, I thought you would need some convincing. So earlier this week, I went around my home before work to show you that nanotech is very commonplace. Let's have a listen. (sighs) Right, time to get up. It's a beautiful chilly day outside. First things first, time to take my lateral flow test. Oh, gosh, they always make me want to sneeze. By now, we are all more than familiar with lateral flow tests. But did you know that the red lines are in fact made up of gold nanoparticles? We all know gold is shiny and yellow, but when we cut it up into tiny nanoscale chunks, it takes on new properties and appears red. 
nanoparticles of materials can have very different properties compared to the material at larger scales, which is one of the things that makes them so useful. While I wait for my test results, time to shove a wash on. You may not know this, but powdered washing detergent contains a nanomaterial that makes our detergents more efficient. Lauren McHugh from the University of Cambridge is going to tell us a little bit more. If you look on the back of a box of soap powder, you'll probably see zeolites as an ingredient. Zeolites are crystalline materials and they're composed of aluminium, oxygen and silicon, and they contain microscopic channels, which we refer to as pores. So the cage-like structures of these zeolites make them really useful in water softening. So in water softeners, hard water, such as that we have in Cambridge, contains calcium and magnesium ions, and it's passed through sodium-containing zeolites. So the calcium and magnesium ions in the water are trapped by the zeolite, and the sodium ions present in the channels of the zeolites are released. So the new water contains sodium ions, and this can be considered soft. So when washing in hard water, magnesium and calcium precipitate with soap, which hinders the formation of suds. However, when the ion exchange occurs, the sodium ions now present in the water do not precipitate with the soap, and this leads to the formation of more suds and a more efficient detergent. So I guess that's one way of saying we are slightly less bubbly here in Cambridgeshire. All of that hard water and minerals in the water can mean that tap water can leave that off-putting taste for some people. Bet you didn't know that another place where nanotechnology is used is in water purification filters. Lauren, what's going on inside these filters? So a water filter will contain activated charcoal, and this is another highly porous material similar to zeolites. Activated charcoal has an extremely high surface area, and it's really effective in absorbing contaminants. So the chemicals that activated charcoal tends to remove would be things like chlorine or anything that has like an odour, And then these water filters will also contain um, ion exchange resins. And these will help to, again, remove some of the hardness from water. While that filters, I better go brush my teeth. So my toothpaste contains activated charcoal. What's that meant to do for my teeth? In cosmetics, uh, a lot of the time activated charcoal will be used to detoxify. So if you go into any pharmacy, I'm sure you'll see an abundance of face masks that say you know these activated charcoal face masks will detoxify your skin and remove impurities and then similarly if you then take an activated charcoal toothpaste you know it will claim to remove stains from your teeth so again because of the the porosity present in these carbons you know you're, you're going to be sort of binding impurities to the surface of the carbon do you think it works Um, I do have my reservations about it. Um, So activated charcoals are actually very granular. So I think a lot of the time you're probably just rubbing a part of the surface of your teeth off by using these um, toothpaste. So it's up to you. They they maybe do, you know, do something about removing stains from your teeth, but you're also probably rubbing part of your teeth off in the process. So (laughs) very much up to you whether you use them or not. Right, now that I've nanotech my teeth, my COVID test has come back as negative. Oh, I'm running late. I need to get out the door and get on my bike with a frame that's reinforced with, you'll never guess it, carbon nanotubes. So you see, Sally, nanotech really is everywhere. Hang on, so there are gold nanoparticles in all of my COVID tests. I should have been keeping them all. I have been throwing them away like an idiot. I would be a millionaire by now. Don't worry, you would need a lot of COVID tests before getting to that point. 
And nanotech in my laundry. Yeah, to me, zeolites sound like some sort of alien species, but they are actually a crazily widespread nanomaterial. And then this carbon nanotube malarkey. Why have you got them in your bike? So carbon nanotubes are rolled up tubes of graphene, which you may have heard of already. And these are far stronger than steel, yet far lighter, making them a really interesting material to work with. And although carbon nanotubes sounds like a, like a new fad, they actually date back to a very long time ago. So legend tells of a sword with mystical properties. And blacksmith Magnus Sigurdsson is going to tell us the story of the Sword of Damascus. There are many stories from the Third Crusades of King Richard meeting Saladin. They decide to compare sword blades. King Richard the Lionheart produces his sword of Frankish steel and cuts through an inch-thick iron bar, having no damage to his blade whatsoever. Saladin then produces his lighter blade, which shines with a blue-grey effect. Looking closely at the blade, it looks like a starry night being viewed over a rippling pond. With this, he lays out a silken scarf and cuts through it with one swipe. King Richard swears he has never seen such a blade so sharp. Okay, not going to lie, that was a great story. But what does any of that have to do with carbon nanotubes? So there is a lot of speculation about it, but a few years ago, this mythical, mystical, magical material, Damascus steel, was discovered to contain these carbon nanotubes. And they reckon that that might be why it's so strong. So you've been bigging up nanotechnology to me as this new cutting edge material when actually we've been using it for nearly a thousand years. So these structures have existed for a while, but it's only recently that we've been able to control how we make the carbon nanotubes and therefore control the properties. Well, someone who knows all about that is Michael DeVolder, materials engineer from the University of Cambridge, who specialises in carbon nanotubes. Michael, what makes Damascus steel and therefore Saladin's sword so strong? Michael, what makes Damascus steel and therefore Saladin's sword so strong? Well, I'm not sure anyone really knows But as you mentioned, what people have discovered in 2006 by actually dissolving a little bit of Damascus sword in acid is that there is carbon tubes inside. Now, that brings about two mysteries. How did the carbon tubes get in there in the first place? And then what do they do to the steel to make it better? Well, exactly. I think of carbon nanotubes as something modern and fancy you need a lab for. How did the nanotubes get in there that many years ago? Well, for that, we need to... um, understand how carbon tubes are made, and although they sound very fancy, actually, their synthesis, the way they are made, is very much like gardening, something you've all done. And so, as you know, for gardening, you need some seeds, uh, you need some energy from the sun, and you need soil and a fertilizer to make the plants grow. In the case of carbon tubes, those seeds are little metal clusters, oftentimes iron, The food you feed them instead of soil would be a hydrocarbon, and then you need some energy, heat. And if you think about how a sword is made, there's lots of iron in the steel, uh, which can act as a seed. You do heat them up to high temperature, which is also what's needed for carbon nanotubes. And then the question is, where would the carbon source come from to make the nanotubes? And it turns out that in the recipe of these Damascus swords, people did add various leaves and wood 
to the steel as they were making it, and that could very much have been the carbon source or one of the carbon sources to make the nanotubes. No so all the ingredients so they knew were there. That- they knew that they were adding these leaves and they ended up with stronger steel, but obviously they wouldn't have known that they were building these carbon nanotubes, but they did it anyway. Yeah, exactly. So I think a lot of times discoveries are made by serendipity and people do things without necessarily knowing how exactly they are made. What gives carbon nanotubes their strength? Why does having them in your steel make your sword so strong? The bond between the carbon atoms in a material like graphene, which is essentially the same as the surface of a carbon nanotube, is a very special bond that is mechanically very strong. And it also allows the carbon atoms to share electrons and, and makes the material electrically conductive. So it's a very, very special bond that we have in between the carbon atoms in, in carbon nanotubes. How long are these tubes? I mean, we, we call them nanotubes, so obviously they're small in diameter, but how long can they get? So, so that, that's a very interesting question. So the pieces that were found in the Damascus sword, which I've seen electron images of, were fairly short. But the current world record in the length of a single nanotube is about half a meter long. Half, a, half a meter? Long. That's not nano. Yes. But it's only, what, a few atoms across and half a meter long? That's correct. So the diameter is tiny. The ratio between the diameter of planet Earth and a tennis ball is about the same as the tennis ball and that nanotube. And so although it's very long, its diameter is still at a nanoscale. Thank you so much, Michael. That was Michael DeVolder from the University of Cambridge. I'm still joined by nanotechnologist Katie King, who's trying to convince me of the wonders of nanomaterials. And still to come... I find out about nanosurgeons. Okay, I'll be honest with you, Katie. When you told me that we would be discussing nanotechnology, I was expecting a whole show on nanorobots. And so far, nothing you've told me sounds as cool as the nanobots that I've seen in all of the movies. Gosh, you really are difficult to please, aren't you, Sally? But you're right. The things we have spoken about so far are quite passive. They're static materials doing their thing whereas nanorobots can interact and respond to their surroundings, which is really cool. So you're saying nanorobots do exist? Well, I had a chat with Kevin Lim, nanoroboticist at the University of Cambridge, to find out what nanorobotics is. It's to make grey goo, like tiny nanorobots that will self-replicate and take over the world and destroy everything. Uh, But no, that's not really what we do. Even if we wanted to, we're pretty far off from that stage. If nanorobots aren't there to take over the world, what are they? So normally you have um, nanoparticles, which are just very small blobs of stuff, essentially, which we look at and play with at the nanoscale. But if you can go a step further and actually make them do something, have some sort of a controllable function that is useful, then you could call that a nanomachine or a nanorobot. What sort of functions are these nanorobots performing? So it depends on on what you're trying to do. It depends on the application. But in my project, one of the goals that we had at the start was to make a machine that could basically take two other particles. So we've got one tiny machine and two tiny particles and stick them together. So it'd be basically like a nano stapler. A nano stapler. Yeah. You said you made these nano staplers out of DNA. How does that work? Ah, so the really cool thing about using DNA is that you can essentially program it to assemble in a certain way 
by controlling the sequence of DNA bases. So if you're familiar with this idea of the A and T and G and C bases in DNA, you've got these four, and they pair up in a certain way. A pairs with T and G pairs with C, and this forms this classic double helix structure. But you can go a step further and you can make sort of superstructures of this. So you can have double helices that are running in certain ways that form a bigger shape. So it's a little bit like uh, you could say maybe knitting or crocheting. So you've used DNA to knit together your structure, but how is that a nanomachine? You, you could have a, a nano stapler that just flops around and does whatever it wants, but that wouldn't really be a machine in the sense that you couldn't know when it was going to do its job and you couldn't tell it to do it. You couldn't tell it to start and, and to stop. So in a way, that's what I would call more like a nano mechanism. So it has the, the ability to transmit force and to do these things, but not so much in a controlled way. What would you say the difference between a nanomechanism and a nanomachine is? The difference between a mechanism and a machine is a little bit like the difference between a trained dog and an untrained dog. So with the, the untrained dog, it's doing certain things, but you don't really have the ability to tell it what to do and to know when it's going to do them. Whereas with a trained dog, it actually does certain tricks that you've taught it how to do. And you know that you can reliably expect it to do them at the right times. And what do we use to control or are we trying to use to control these nanomachines? The control signals that we have, one of them could be, for example, the pH. You could program it so that when the pH becomes acidic or alkaline to a certain point, that it would release its payload and release the drug to the target. Another way is that you could use light. So with certain types of nanoparticles, with certain types of nanomaterials, they would be light responsive. And that would be another way by illuminating them, by shining light on them at a certain point, you could get them to do their thing. Right. So you can use different things as your stimulus, as your trigger. Exactly. As nanorobotics is working to train these nanoparticle dogs, if you will, to perform on command, where do you see this leading in the future? If you look far into the future, it's, it's not impossible that you could have some sort of a very rudimentary nanosurgeon. Even if we have these nanorobots of the future, they aren't going to look anything as sci-fi and they're not going to look basically like tiny, shiny Terminators or anything. They're, they're probably going to look like more or less blobs that flop around, but somehow get a job done. If you just wanted something that's going to bring a certain drug to a location in the body and release it on command, that's not so far off. I mean, that's being done. That was Kevin Lim from the University of Cambridge. Katie, I don't know if I'm disappointed or relieved that there aren't going to be any tiny, shiny Terminator robots whizzing around anytime soon. I have to say I'm pretty excited to have nanosurgeons and nanodoctors, but I can't help but imagine my GP in nanoform. But a nanosurgeon? I'm not sure I want surgery from a tiny little robot with a tiny little surgical mask and an even smaller nanoscalpel. I don't think a nanoscalpel is our next step, but what we are working on is exactly what Kevin said, getting drugs to certain parts of the body and releasing them on command, which is what I find very exciting. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. So the ones that respond to pH are particularly interesting. So when nanoparticles are gobbled up by cancer cells, they experience a more acidic environment, and that acidity can be used as a trigger to release the drug. So the nanoparticles, like a Trojan horse that the cancer cells eat, not knowing that it's about to kill them. Exactly. 
exactly that. In fact, I might call myself that, a nano-Trojan horsecist. You keep working on that. Well, we're joined now by Sylvia Sonzini, a drug delivery scientist at AstraZeneca, who has been working on creating different ways of using nanotechnology to deliver medicines for different diseases. Sylvia, we've just been hearing about nanorobots. Please tell me, are you building tiny robots that will float around in our blood delivering medicines? <laughs> no, well, we are really not working on that. And nanomedicine are quite far from being a, a robot-like material. But nanomedicine are drug delivery systems. And you can imagine them as a polymeric or oily particles that are carrying around active drug molecules in our body and really allowing them to reach the tissue of interest and even into the disease cells. So you say they're tiny particles. How big are these things compared with our human cells? They're very, very tiny. When we look at them, they are about 100 times smaller than a cell. And there are many different sizes of of nanomedicine, so it's difficult to say specifically one size. But really, they're so small compared to a cell that many can be eaten by each cell at once. And presumably, they must be quite tricky to make and quite expensive. So why would you want to use nanomedicine rather than just injecting the drug into someone's bloodstream like we've been doing for hundreds of years? nanomedicine are at the forefront of medicine and they allow us to bring specific molecules to specific parts of our bodies and really reach some target that wouldn't be able to be reached in other ways with the standard drug molecules. And how can they recognise one cell over another? Katie was just talking about them targeting cancer cells. How can something so small recognise the difference between a cancerous cell and a healthy cell? So we are using an active targeting system, which means we are adding basically biological parts on top of our nanomedicine that can interact with the lock and key mechanism with the disease cells and so can really discern between disease and healthy cells. Is this all just science fiction or is any of it being used already? No, actually, there are some nanomedicine already on the market and many are in the clinic. In AstraZeneca, we have two in the clinic right now and many more than are going through preclinical and clinical studies at the moment. Amazing. Thank you so much, Sylvia. That was Sylvia Sonzini from AstraZeneca. Okay, Katie, I reckon you've convinced me that nanotech might actually be useful. I knew I'd convince you eventually, Sally. And I really think that nanotech will push science forward in leaps and bounds, especially in medicine. So watch this nanospace. I see what you did there. And now let's end with our question of the week. I've been getting all antsy answering this question from listener Sarah. Why do ant bites hurt so much? Now, Sarah, this question brings up some painful memories for me. A few years ago, I was doing some research in the Borneo jungle, brushed my leg across one of the dangling vines, as you do. But unbeknownst to me, this vine was also a motorway for a huge ant colony. And the second I interfered with their traffic flow, dozens of these tropical ants jumped onto and into my trousers. I was left resorting to slapping my legs all over to squash the very literal ants in my pants. And I was left with 52 ant bites all over my bum. And yes, they hurt a lot. So before I get all antsy again, let's hear the answer from Sam Robinson from the University of Queensland, who specialises in pain and stinging insects. Well, firstly, most ants do bite, but... Their bites are almost always inconsequential to us. It's their stings that typically grab our attention. Worldwide, there are about 20,000 different species of ant. You can view them as just a family of wingless wasps, really. That's technically what they are. 
And like their wasp ancestor, most ants can sting. Okay, okay, bite or sting, it still hurts. Why does it have to hurt so much? Yes, the stings of many species can be very painful. Why? Because they have to be to survive. Ants live in colonies. Their colonies include their young, which are their eggs, larvae, pupa, which we call the brood. These collectively represent a stationary and helpless nutritional bounty for a large predator. Ants need to be able to defend their colony against predators in order to survive. And a painful sting is a very effective strategy to achieve this. It certainly got this large predator away from the ant colony very effectively. I wonder what is in the ant venom that makes them so painful, even with such a tiny sting? Not all ant stings are equal. Some are more painful than others. This can reflect one of two things. Either you're receiving a different dose of their venom when they sting, or it can represent the fact that different ants have different venom chemistries. Some of the more painful ant stings are caused by venom molecules, which very effectively target an essential part of our sensory nervous system that's responsible for sending pain signals. It's called a voltage-gated sodium channel. Other ants, of course, use chemicals that cause pain in different ways, and a variety of different chemical strategies probably exist. There we go. And you can curse your overly activated voltage-gated sodium channels next time you've got ants in your pants. Next week, we're answering this toasty question from Patrick. My question is, when I have cold feet, why won't my brain let me sleep? I mean, Patrick, if you've got cold feet, it sounds like you need to see a therapist. But if you at home want to tell us your answer, you can join the debate on our forum, nakedscientists.com forward slash forum, or email chris at nakedscientists.com. That's it for this week. Thank you to Katie King for helping to put the show together. Next week is our Christmas special, and we've got something rather special indeed underneath the Christmas tree. But you'll have to make sure you're good before we unwrap that one. The Naked Scientists comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute for Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Sally LePage. Thank you for listening. And until next time, goodbye. <laughs>